everyone, it's Michael Ellsberg, and I am very excited to be here with my dear friend and longtime writing mentor, Thomas Farber. And we're going to be talking about his most recent book, Acting My Age. And um, one of the things that's personally meaningful for me about this interview is that uh, aside from my father, there's literally no human being who has even come close to having such an impact on my own writing career and my writing style. Um, I've been very fortunate to have such a um, accomplished, talented, and generous mentor over, what, it's been over a decade, m much more probably, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. if we go back to, to, to you in New York City. Yeah, that's, that's coming up on two decades. Yeah. 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 Um, so thank you, Tom, for, for all the influence and guidance you've given me on my own writing career. Oh, thank you, Michael. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels good to come for full circle because, you know, I might not have the audience that I have had I not developed my writing in the way I did. And you were influenced, very influential in that. So to be able to share back with my audience the roots of it all is, uh, is great. Thank you. Well, yeah. you were also my mentor in Cuban Music and dance. Right? Okay, yeah. Well, we, we did a little yeah. trade there. Yeah. yeah, that was great. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I have uh, tons of questions about this wonderful, moving book. Uh, but before we dive in, how would you describe to our listeners now um, what this book is about for you and what motivated you to write it? Well, uh, I wrote a book because uh, I'm a writer. And... Uh, I suppose that's just a habit and a way of being in the world. Uh, I get to uh, be a craftsperson in that regard. Uh, the The book is uh, framed uh, in time by uh, two open heart surgeries, uh, five years apart. And so uh, my previous book closes. Uh, the previous book was called Here and Gone. And that was third-person nonfiction. So this story, this book picks up uh, after that first open-heart surgery. And uh, it runs through uh, to uh, a second-heart surgery five years later, the same brilliant surgeon. So the book is framed by uh, intimations of mortality, uh, but the book is also... Uh, framed by my ongoing uh, fear for the fate of the ocean and for our role in the fate of the ocean and by extension to the rest of the, the non-human world. Uh, somewhere in the book, uh, uh, an Australian writer uh, suggests that we shouldn't be talking about uh, extinction events. We should be talking about extermination events uh, caused by humans uh, who know what they're doing. And in a funny way, we all know what we're doing uh, to different degrees, but we sense something's off. So uh, so these two themes, the my own aging and my own uh, miraculous uh, recoveries from, uh, from uh, surgeries uh, and, and the human impact on the larger world, those things kind of come together in this book, and I try to move uh, between them. The other aspect is that the book is also about writing. It's about uh, writing as a kind of joy uh, and uh, uh, an attempt at clarity and beauty. And uh, so 
I end up making that explicitly part of what's going on, I think. Mm. Yes, yeah, that's that's what stood out for me um, the most about this book is that uh, in some ways it's a, it's a meditation on, of course, aging and death, uh, but there's an interweaving of reflections on kind of the death of the oceans. Um, you know, you've been intimately in, involved in ocean life from your own passion for the ocean to writing about the ocean and as you say there's you can't really escape what's happening to the oceans if you're involved at all Uh, no what i say somewhere is that uh, i'm not who i used to be 50 years ago but neither is the ocean yeah Uh, and when i'm in the ocean uh, you know i spent so much time uh, in 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 the tropics uh i I often feel the ocean is looking at me askance sort of saying uh you know, Tom, you know, uh, how can you people be doing this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So there's this interweaving of, um, you know, some amount of grief for uh, for what's happening to the oceans. Um, there's this, you, you caught my attention to a word I'd never heard before, solastasia. Oh, yeah. Which is distress caused by uh, environmental degradation, environmental harm. Yeah. Um, would you uh, would you say I didn't detect quite as much grief around the idea of your own death? Uh, that there there seemed to be more of a acceptance or a a kind of kind of reposed uh, uh, acceptance that this is part of the cycle. Um, whereas I feel there is more of a sense of of um, outrage and grief about about the death of the oceans. Um, I think one of the things that happens when you get older is you see a lot of other people aging and you see them in trouble. Uh, And you you see that for a lot of them, there's no escape from a long period of trouble. So that it makes one uh, have a a much less romantic vision of older age. Uh, You wouldn't mind living longer, but on what terms? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And so... uh, I think that becomes inescapable. Um, in the book, I quote from this uh, Wallace Stevens poem, uh, which has a long German title. Uh, <clears throat> but what he, where he's going is that among the old, the the uh, the brave and the strong have already perished, and we're left. And uh, he he has this extraordinary conclusion to this short poem, which goes. <clears throat> Each person completely touches us with what he is and as he is in the stale grandeur of annihilation. Well, when I first read that poem, I thought this was a little, you know, over the top. But then I started thinking about it. Uh, Initially, I thought, wow, how can we know what someone else is really and, you know, as they are really? But then sometimes I would be seeing someone my age or someone who is suffering an illness and I would just see them kind of as they are Mm -hmm. uh, without uh, trying to make them into something, trying to make myself into something for them. Uh, And that's often how things are at the ocean, when I'm just there and suddenly I I feel fully aware of, of what it is and what I am. So each person completely touches us with what he is and as he is 
in the stale grandeur of annihilation. Mm, mm. Um, let's so okay on that topic of annihilation. Let's talk about the first part of the book where you really get into what's going on to the ocean, what's going on to the to um, uh, you know the rest of uh, creation, as yeah. they say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so preface everything we're saying here with. Yes, there are differences, uh, you know, among who is harming uh, species. And I think that quote that you said is really powerful. Um, you know, it's not an extinction, mass extinction, it's a mass extermination. Um, there's never been a species that has harmed so many other species on, uh, on such a scale, quantity, uh, breadth, and depth. Um, until, except for the cyanobacteria, yeah. <laughs> like billions of years ago, which turned the atmosphere um, from carbon dioxide to uh, oxygen, although we're doing our best to bring it back. To <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the problem is that, that we're also a, a remarkable species. You know, the, the uh, human population is, uh, is four times larger now than 100 years ago. Why is that? It's because of the amazing advances in, in medicine, amazing public health improvements. Um, so this is miraculous, you know, uh, sending someone to Mars, you know, or sending uh, something to Mars. The, you know, this is an amazing species, but no other alpha predator uh, wipes out other things the way we do. Uh, so it, it's how to view a species that can do that particularly in our current political and social moment. You know, you cannot look at the last four or five years of this country and, and not be dismayed, to use a mild word. And so all of that in terms of how we view our presence on the planet and what we hope for from ourselves and others, because we're all in some degree complicit in this amazing thing. If I can go to the market and get choose among a million different products from a million different places. Wow, how did they all get here, right? Yeah. That kind yeah. of question. Where, where do you situate yourself in this spectrum of, you know, loving humans uh, and the kind of humanistic humans are the greatest species ever and over more towards the end where I occupy, which is probably an affirmative answer to these questions. Are we, uh, you know, a malignant growth, a pestilence, plague? But you ask it as a question, so what's your answer? <laughs> well, two things. Uh, I'm my parents' child, so my father was an extraordinary physician and uh, a person dedicated uh, not only to uh, curing cancer, but also to providing medical care for everyone for free. Uh, so uh, I have that example of what a human can do. And, and my mother, the writer, uh, uh, she was a poet who published 30-something books. She had a line in one of her poems, make me no lazy love, move me from case to case. So there's a part of me that tries to stay in the face of large conclusions, my own, inclu my own uh, included, uh, to try to ground myself in specifics. So for, for me, uh, writing, uh, because it takes a while to try to get it right, to shape it, to make it as true as I can, 
writing is a way to, to ground my larger anxieties about what we all are together uh, in, uh, in precise description uh, or to illuminate something. Uh, and then, of course, uh, in the book, there's a lot of humor about different things as well, right? And so I'm, I'm trying to look at different aspects of our, of our, of our life. For instance, at, at the end of his life, the, the writer and actor Sam Shepard, famous in his moment, uh, he was, when he died, he was about my age. Uh, but he was suffering from uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. And he made a heroic effort to finish one more book. And he was helped by Patti Smith. And all of this is wonderful. But at the same time, I was asking myself, well, what did that save? You see, really, is that what art can do? Uh, and, and that's a question I let run through the book. You know, uh, we can admire someone's heroism and tenacity and courage, but uh, what do we make of that? So a lot of these things I don't come out on one side or the other of. I, I'm just immersed in trying to articulate. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. Um, I, I should add, can I? Uh, please, of yeah, course. I should add that Jonathan Swift, who you and I both know, was a great uh, misanthrope. Uh, he uh, he argued that uh, one has to look in the mirror too when when pointing out the foibles of the species, and mm -hmm. so oh yeah yeah of course and, and, oh it, and, and, and so and so I have uh, tried to do that some and uh, it's a it's a, what do they say it it's a caution when you do that yeah yeah, yeah. not to exempt yourself yeah. oh of yeah. course and i think if you've seen on the misanthropy stuff i'm writing um i i, I absolutely do not uh, put myself above oh. uh, anyone <laughs> no so no. you can't i mean we're all part of i mean if you're going to take that stance you know we're all part of it um so um Speaking of humor, um, you, you use the phrase bleak humor towards the end. Um, I, I really relate in my writing to this idea of gallows humor. Yes. What What is your take on that kind of uh, somewhat pessimistic humor that one can adopt uh, when contemplating grim things such as extermination or one's own impending death is that a is that like a therapeutic function or what what do you think of humor at that juncture uh you remember um one of god's fools uh, larry kudlow who uh is a uh, work for trump a, a economic advisor and now he's back on fox news i think and uh kudlow is is there opining about something and he says uh uh, to try to give a frame to it, he says, I, he says, I don't think we'll see this again in my lifetime. And I ask, I quote him, and then I say, well, geez, I wonder how long he imagines that is. Here's a guy, he's in his 70s, he's had, been a drug addict, he's been, you know, had all kinds of problems, he's had surgeries. When he said that, not in my lifetime, how long did he think he had? And uh, that makes me laugh, because for all I know, it could be tomorrow for him. Uh, so, some of some of the wry humor—I wouldn't call it quite gallows—but uh, it's a saving grace. Uh, mm -hmm. Wit can be 
not only savage, but but a saving grace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In my own existential positioning, I've I found that a certain um, shrugging of the shoulders at the absurdity of <laughs> so many things on this planet is uh, a kind of tonic that uh, makes it a little easier to swallow. You know, in the European wars in the 20th century, <clears throat> 100 million people died. Yeah. You, you could have said, well, that must have been the end of everything. But, but it wasn't. Except for the dead people and their families, it wasn't the end of everything. Life went on and, you know, in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s in America, there were a lot of people got wealthy and uh, healthy and all mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in Europe too. So um, predicting the future is, of course, a, a, a complicated game. Yeah. Yeah. So there was two paragraphs here which um, expressed a very subtle point, which I haven't seen expressed very often and which I'm writing about as well. So I was very interested. One of the paragraphs is a quote um, from Jedediah Purdy in a book called After Nature. Yes. And he says, quote, uh, Nature, mute and sometimes beautiful, invites the narcissistic projections of nostalgia. Involvement with nature has been a way to stand apart from the ordinary human situation with all its compromises, indignities, and petty satisfactions. A disgust at much of humanity shows up again and again, and aligning with nature has often meant disowning ordinary humanity, or at least exempting oneself from it. Those who love certain parts of nature are often making a point of preferring it to certain kinds of human beings. That's Purdy's quote. And then you respond, Touché, guilty as charged. For instance, during my stay in Fiji years ago, I struggled to avoid mosquitoes that carried dengue fever. Back in Northern California, I was on the lookout for the black-legged deer ticks carrying Lyme disease. And here in the cottage, while doing my best to save crane flies I find inside, there's no such solicitousness for, say, meal moths, mice, termites, or for Norwegian roof rats, our perennial home companions, which I admire only from afar. As Marguerite Holloway writes, rats are our shadow daemons with us for millennia doing much as we do, wiping out species, spreading disease, consuming resources, using their fierce intelligence to adapt. So I think this is a really uh, important and subtle point here is that we often uh, set ourselves apart from nature and the environmental movement uh, critiques this um, and, uh, and they say, you know, that this setting apart allows us to destroy our very home and such. And yet in their own way, the environmental movement kind of recreates that setting apart because they act as if uh, incredible viciousness and destruction is uh, only a human thing that, you know, we inflict on these innocent Bambis. Whereas if you look in nature, yeah. I mean, there's just viciousness all around. Uh, there's, there's, you know, the, the, the nice, the warm, fuzzy things are, are the exception, not the rule. Yeah, there, there are a lot of writers who have uh, argued that, uh, let's say, the famous uh, photographer Ansel Adams' photographs of beautiful moonrise in the Sierra, well, there's a lot left out. And so I myself uh, am drawn to being instructed about what's miraculous in the larger world. 
but there's a lot that isn't uh, immediately at hand to be seen. Uh, th there was a movement in Berkeley by some uh, some people uh, interested in uh, in animal rights uh, to say that uh, it's uh, wrong to uh, to for any animal to consume another animal. Mm, well, yeah. that's simply not a description of the uh, the category animal. Yeah, animals actually eat animals. Yeah, uh, and so it, it's a wonderfully uh, naive and mistaken view yeah. uh, of the of what goes on uh, in the larger yeah. world. But would that it were more like a, a Disney cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. But it isn't. Yeah. 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 yeah that's uh, actually yeah. So that's a whole movement um, that concerns itself with what they call wildlife suffering. So if yeah. you you know you look at the suffering that humans inflict on other animals and food production and hunting and so forth, which is yeah. horrible and widespread. Uh, but it's actually a, a drop in the bucket compared to the, the suffering that happens in the wild every day. And these people are coming along and saying, well, let's, uh, let's, if we're concerned about suffering as we are, and we're concerned about animal suffering, we should take out uh, predators. We should take yeah. out lions and such. Yeah. And this just seems like such a insanely uh, arrogant way to go about. Uh, there are two things ecology. about that. Yeah. Two things. So there are people who've written about what they call the necropastoral, that is the death pastoral, meaning there's a lot of death in the natural world, of course. Okay. So there's there's a lot of people. Uh, insisting on the necro pastoral, but also um, people who are concerned for good reason about animal rights uh, also uh, are the beneficiaries of technology. Their smartphones, their computers, their cars, their airplane rides, they come from labor in the third world, <laughs> which is not well paid and often under slave conditions. So that's called uh, being party to passive injustice. Well, we kind of know uh, something good's not happening that makes all of our toys, but we, uh, we have our sights set on this other problem, which is animal rights. Nothing wrong with that, but one wants to be sure to implicate the self. Uh, I don't mean to be walking around guilt, trip, uh, guilt tripping, but simply to see the world as complex as it is, right? anyway so yeah 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 um i want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the writing style yeah um and this is one that uh very much has influenced me um uh well first of all before i say more about the style i think one relevant thing is that a huge literary obsession of yours as you put it has been uh, epigrams, yeah. and a, a lot of your writing, as long as I've known you, has been books of epigrams. Yeah, um, there's uh, there's a list of them in the book on page one fifty six of a few of your uh, many many epigrams. So an epigram, how would you describe to the reader what an epigram is? Well, it's uh, something short. Uh, it's compressed language. the The goal is to uh, to say something insightful. Uh, uh, often about human foible uh, and, and folly, but not necessarily, but to say it uh, in compressed uh, language that has not been said before. Uh, and so uh, the, uh, 
as Carl Krauss, the great writer, uh, said, uh, an epigram can be a half truth or a one and a half truth. That is, it's based on hyperbole, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the, the excess is part of the form, right? Yeah. So there's one here that uh, I remember when I was reading your epigram books, and you reproduce it here. Um, it says, Q, have I wasted my whole life? A, no, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a kind of bleak, that talk about the, the bleak humor there. Here's one. Uh, I don't know if it's in the book. It goes like this. The old have two questions for the young. One, do you think I always look like this? And two, do you think you'll never look like this? Yeah, 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 that's right. Uh, yeah. yeah. See, now, I don't think that's been said quite that way before. Yeah. And, and that's part of the goal. Yeah. Uh, it, it was... Uh, the epigrams rest on hyperbole and compression uh, and paradox. Uh, and I was, as a left-hand literary exercise, I spent maybe 15 years, you know, occasionally doing another little book of them. Um, and then finally, I, I kind of outgrew the form, but uh, I don't regret the time I spent on it. But um, after a while, you want to get back to the complexities of stories, mm -hmm. of narrative. And the even a brilliant epigram doesn't cover enough for me. Yeah. For some people, uh, yeah. the, the form still compels. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> what I find interesting and instructive about reading your work for me as a writer is that uh, even in the prose parts, which are not epigrams, um, they have a you have a, a an epigrammatic feel to a lot of your writing. Yeah. Um, in uh, and I'll. I'll give an example that I liked here. Um, I'm going to read one passage. This is from a great riff on um, some monk seals that uh, parked themselves on a beach where they used to used to be their home and now they've been so overrun that it's very rare that they show up and the tourists were just going apeshit over this and yeah. you know pulling out their cameras. Uh, so this is one paragraph I'll read. Or actually, how about this? Could turn turn to page 38 yep. and read. Oh, uh, about smartphones. Tourists arriving at this beach, lugging, folding chairs, towels, snorkels, sunscreen, glimpse a mound on the sand with signs around it. Sense something unusual. The undomesticated non-human. Reflexively reach for phone in back pocket hand in front of face, picture taken, before eyes process what the camera takes. Eyes looking down at screen to see what the camera saw. Opposable thumbs thumbing away to, quote, share the image. Monkey see, monkey do. A thing is not an image, Charles Wright wrote. So rare now, someone without smartphone at the ready True, true, we already had hip, shoulder, knee replacement, heart and teeth implants, breast enhancement. But now it's as if first world people have become cyborgs, those science fiction creatures with mechanical inserts. Two arms, two legs, one head, one phone, six appendages. <laughs> I love it. So, um, yeah, it's just so evocative. Um, and so on the stylistic side that first paragraph has uh five or six sentences and only one of them is a complete 
you know, grammatically complete sentence. Yeah. And this, I've actually learned a lot from you. Um, perhaps you could say even aped it to a certain degree till I found my own rhythm with it uh, of, of just deciding that uh, sometimes it's better. You don't need all the words in a sentence and um, you can just say things more directly yes. um, and it, you have a language you've almost invented your own way of writing where you you kind of know exactly the point where the inflection point where you can uh cut words out of sentences while still giving the reader uh, a, a positive experience it's not a disjointed experience yeah i Tell want the, i want the language to be compressed and and i wanted to uh to to eliminate what's not important uh, and it's great fun, you know, to make yeah. language, uh, to work to make language that way. Yeah. As a writer, where do you think you got this inclination to to compress language and make it as tight? I, I, I think it started uh, when, when I was a young writer and I was writing short stories. And for some reason, I thought short stories would be uh, easier because they were short than a novel. And that was not true. Uh, to make a short story work, you have to really uh, get moving and get out of there. So that was one kind of uh, teaching uh, and learning experience. And the rest of it was uh, just a hunger, um, maybe uh, from my poet mother, uh, to make language as true as I could and, and um, to make the reader pay attention. and. Uh, some other writers have done it that way. For instance, Gertrude Stein, you know, with her crazy grammatical uh, processes, forced you to pay attention. And that's really what I'm trying to do with the reader here is not, not to make it um, um, languidly accessible, but to make the reader stay right with me. Mm-hmm. And that's why I use a lot of those, uh, uh, you know, slash marks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Keep moving. Yeah. 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 For a reader who is contemplating their own death for whatever reason, um, who might be drawn to a meditation, a book that is in a large part of meditation on death, is there any attitude or awareness or way of thinking about this mystery called death that that you hope comes across through this book? I think I'm less troubled by the notion of death than some people. I know many people say they're haunted by the idea of death. If so, that hasn't hit me yet. I am much more haunted by debility, helplessness, and the burden placed on others. You, you know in the book there's a piece called uh, Swimming to Molokai. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, after an operation that didn't go well, uh, uh, I couldn't surf uh, anymore because my knees uh, were uh, giving me a lot of trouble and I was in a lot of discomfort. So. I was swimming, I, you know, taking very long swims in the Pacific, uh, in Hawaii, and uh, sometimes when I'd come back to the beach, uh, because I was wearing a wetsuit and uh, you know looked like I'd just come back from a, a distance, people would say, uh, uh, "How far did you go?" Well, that was never my goal. I wasn't a competitive swimmer, uh, but uh, I, sometimes to amuse myself, I would say. Uh, uh, Molokai. Well, Molokai is 35 miles from that beach, and no one's ever actually been able to make that swim. Uh, people can come from Molokai to Oahu, 
some great athletes, but not the other way. So swimming to Molokai. Well, if a local guy asked me that question, how far did you go? And I said, Molokai, we would both laugh. But uh, I think my concern uh, about swimming to Molokai was, uh, like some people, I want to be in control of my exit if I can. Uh, and that may not work for so many reasons, particularly in a country that precludes people from that uh, simple kind of grace, as mm -hmm. I see it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would say that my focus, at least at the moment, is not on death and the hereafter. Uh, I think in part because my physician far father and my poet mother, neither of them ever made a reference to an afterlife or anything. I think without even saying so, they just assumed this is where we are. This is our, our mortal coil, uh, period. Uh, and so I, I, I'm not surprised other people worry this issue greatly, but it doesn't appear to be my worry. Uh, but helplessness, uh, being uh, disabled, in, uh, being uh, needing others to get me through a day, nah, doesn't hold much appeal to me. Mm. So swimming to Molokai is my euphemism for my desire to be able to uh, make a decision about how I would go. Mm. Uh, and so in that story, uh, my wonderful wife uh, finally you know, says, what's bugging you? And uh, I haven't been eager to explain just how dark my thinking has gotten. But uh, I said, uh, well, I'm, uh, I'm going to swim to Molokai, but, but I'm not going to make it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, but meanwhile, uh, I'm writing a story about it, aren't I? Yeah, yeah. And so that's uh, my saving grace, uh, but also my compulsion. You know, in the, in the, uh, both, both the opening and the close of the book, I describe uh, what writing is for me and what for writing this book is. And I'll just read uh, that uh, a couple of sentences. Readers will see I address my concerns repeatedly from different points of en entry. Repetition, compulsion, tenacity, you'll decide. And, and I describe being a writer as uh, a process that seemed variously daily craft pursuit, house being constructed, mania, self-directed homeschooling, word music being composed, also self-sentenced hard labor, also life raft, also arguably spiritual practice. Mm. So that's maybe as close to the spiritual as I get. Yeah, yeah. May not be close enough. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue into my last question, which is an obvious one. Um, do you think you will write one more book, or is this the bookend? The, uh, so the book is framed by two different people telling me I'll never stop writing. And I think, oh, man, what a dubious honor. Uh, I mean, that's too, when people say that, uh, they're acknowledging, uh, they're noticing and, and uh, making a point of noticing my compulsive drive over so many years, 50 something years to write books. But it's also true that that, um, that impulse to, to make a book, it means that kind of, for me, once you start it, you got to finish it. And that's a great burden. 
of a sort, uh, but also it means that you're not in the world. You're in this other world that you're creating. And even though I spend a lot of time um, focusing on the ocean uh, very closely, or focusing here on my walks in Berkeley on, you know, the spring coming in and each garden, the miraculous, nonetheless, if you're writing, you're spending a lot of time making another miraculous world. So I'm interested in the decision of writers uh, who stops and when and why and who doesn't stop. As I said, Sam Shepard, you know, goes right to the bitter end and finishes yet another book miraculously. Philip Roth, we learned while he was still alive, uh, had stopped a few years before. I mean, this was an amazingly driven writer. 20 books, I don't know, more. Uh, but apparently he finally felt uh, not that he had said all he had to say, but that he didn't have the physical strength to do as well. Uh, and also that I think he wanted to be in the world as it is for a while. And he had another five or seven years like that. And I don't think had any regrets about that choice. So when people say to me, you'll never stop writing, um, and it's true, uh, friends have teased me that I've often said, this will be my last book, and it hasn't been. Uh, so at the moment, I would say I don't have the chi to start another book, but it's also true that uh, if my chi returns in greater strength, God help me, <laughs> you know, because I have more to say, of course. And I miss, like any artist, any musician, any anyone with any vocation, uh, I miss I miss being immersed in that particular uh, kind of ocean. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing about all this, and thank you so much for this really beautiful book. For those listening. Um, I think in particular, if you're um, wanting a book about um, ecology, the fate of the oceans, um, and uh, reflections on aging, if, if you are aging or have someone, well, everyone's aging, but you know what I mean, <laughs> if you're at that point where we call aging, uh, or, you know, contemplating final acts, or have someone in your life in that state, and also really just, you know, this is the summation of a life uh, devoted to perfecting the craft of writing. And there's just uh, tremendous craftsmanship in this book. So I highly recommend it for that reason as well. Um, any final thoughts you want to share? No, Michael, just thank you. Thank you so much for, for making this possible. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And thank you so much. And um, Thank you again for, for the incredible impact and gift you've had uh, on my own writing.